Greetings to the brightest audience in the country. I'm Nicole McBurney. To kick off the year, we decide to make January our telethon month. And this year, we're looking to raise $25,000 so we can provide you with more and better content. So stick around till the end of the show, and I'll tell you how you can help us reach our telethon goal. With that said, here's today's Theology Thursday. What do you see? Nothing. Boy, it's really overpopulated, huh? If everyone in the world came to Colorado, would they fit? Yes, they'd all fit. I mean, we could all stand next to each other. Not like sardines, but just all stand next to each other. Oh, maybe almost like sardines. Uh, could we fit in Colorado? Yes. You have a map of Colorado, and it's a nice, nice uh, rectangle-shaped deal. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Uh, and would we fit in the whole state? Yeah. In fact, if we look at where uh, Rocky Mountain National Park is, it's about 404 square miles, it'd be a little dot on the map of Colorado. Could everybody go to the park one day if we all wanted to have a barbecue? Or have, yeah. You could all go to the park in one day. Well, they say the planet's population may double one of these years. Well, what if it doubled? Well, then we would need a permit from Estes Park because we'd spill over into Estes Park. I've talked to the city council. So that's, so the world is mostly empty. It's mostly empty, as any airline passenger can attest. Now, what did Britain's Prince Philip say about overpopulation? He's the president of the Worldwide Fund for Nature. And he has said, we document this in the in the uh, article on overpopulation, he has said that he would like to be reincarnated as, what do you think? A doctor? Princess Di? A tree? Uh, Sonny Bono? No. As a killer virus. That's what he said. I'd like to come back as a killer virus. Prince Philip. Maybe Prince HIV lip, perhaps? He wants to come back and start a new AIDS epidemic. And he gets applauded by the liberals. Yay, what a wonderful sentiment. Prince Philip is coming back as HIV. They're such idiots. Jack Fish, a Colorado public school teacher. He's also on and off now and then a school board member in Brighton, Colorado. Uh, he wrote a column in a local newspaper. as back when we were going over to Somalia to keep them from starving to death. And he said the reason for Somalia's overpopulation in his article, I'm sorry, the reason for their famine was overpopulation. That's what he wrote in his article. So I thought, well, this is great. Call him up, have him on the show. Get him to present his argument from his column on the air, and he did. And then I asked Jack Fish, I said, well, that's interesting. So their overpopulation is the reason their country's in such trouble. Yes, that's right. Oh, what is their population? Uh, well, I, I don't know what their population is. Oh, how many square miles is the country, Somalia? Well, well, I don't know. Well, forget about what's their population. What's an estimate like to the nearest million? Well, I don't know. Well, what is the population density of Somalia? Well, I don't know. Well then, what makes you think that overpopulation is the cause of their problem? Well, I'm sure it is. Well, I have an almanac right here, and uh, Jack Fish, public school teacher, um, maybe it never crossed your mind to check, but the population density of Somalia is 29 people per square mile. It's one of the least dense countries in the world. 
So how could overpopulation be their problem? Their problem is underpopulation, as the Bible says. If you don't have enough people, your country can't even function. You'll all starve. So uh, he was a little embarrassed. I asked him, where did he get that information? Did he suck it out of the th tip of his thumb? Is that where he got it? Is that where he got the information? Well, it's a rule of thumb. The rule of thumb is that nice places have a high population density, a lot of people per square mile, and lousy places have few people per square mile. God said, fill the earth so we could be happy and have a good standard of living. I'll give you some nice places and lousy places, and we'll look at their population density. Nice, Austria, 243 people per square mile. Lousy, Angola, 18. Nice, Belgium, 848 people per square mile. Lousy, Bolivia, 17. These all come from the Almanac. Nice, Denmark, 310 people per square mile. Lousy, Botswana, 5 people per square mile. Where do you think they have more people starving per capita? Nice, England, 613 people per square mile. Lousy, Central African Republic, 12 people per square mile. Then if we go down the list of nice places, and I just randomly did this in an almanac. It's easy to do. You can try this at home. Uh, France, 259. Germany, 583. Israel, 605. Italy, 500. Japan, 830. Luxembourg, 400. Netherlands, 960. Uh, Rhode Island, 850 people per square mile. Switzerland, 430. Lousy places, Chad, 17 people per square mile. Congo, I'm sorry, Chad is 10 people per square mile. Congo, 17. Laos, 48. Liberia, 64. Libya, 6. Mozambique, 50. Namibia, 4. Niger, 16. Panama, 84. That's one of the nicest of the lousy places. They've got a few more people. Paraguay, 31. Russia, 22. They can't feed themselves in Russia. Sudan, 29. Somalia, well, we hit that already, 29. Zambia, 30. Zimbabwe, 73. Isn't it something that the nice places have hundreds of people per square mile and the lousy places have nobody per square mile? The Bible says if you want to have a good country, you need a lot of people. Otherwise, you'll all be poor and starving. How about cities like Athens? Anybody ever visit Athens other than Art and Alice? And, all right, Don and Darlene? All right, okay, a few of them. Nice place to go. People usually want to go to Athens. 30,000 people per square mile. Boston, Massachusetts, 8,000. Kitty Dukakis is one of them, but it's still a nice place. <laughs> Paris, France. 20,000 people per square mile. Rome, we love Rome. Uh, Greg and Janie Perry, our dear friends, went with them to Italy. What a great time we had in Rome. It's fabulous. 43,949 people per square mile. 43,949 compared to Somalia that has 29. And they say Somalia is overpopulated. San Francisco, 9,300 people per square mile, uh, getting worse year by year. But that's for a different reason. 
Their population density has also decreased slightly recently. Sydney, Australia, 10,000 people per square mile. Toronto, Canada, beautiful city, 20,000 people per square mile. Everyone in the world could move to Texas. And if I recall, I grew up in Prospect Park, New Jersey. Uh, great town, mom, we had a great time, right? We had a pool in our backyard. We had baseball fields right up the hill. We had a park, a huge quarry. We'd go play in the park, swing from the trees, shoot at birds with slingshots, and just had a great time. And well, we knew they were gonna explode anyway from the rice people threw at the weddings. So we knew they were in for it, so we... Um, so uh, I grew up there, and it's a little place. It's about a quarter of a mile square, Prospect Park. It's one of the smallest cities in the whole country. And th there was like seven, 8,000 people there, which when you work it out, that's a very dense population density per square mile. And if you put everyone in the world in Texas, just in te now, I know everyone would not want to move to Texas. But if you put them there, if you were a liberal, you said you got to live there, uh, it, it would be less dense than so many nice places in the world. If everyone in the world moved to Texas, then we could use the rest of the world for agriculture and recreation. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> not really. Uh, so the world is not overpopulated. The ancient Greeks started that myth to control people. 2,800 years ago, Solomon, inspired by God, wrote in Proverbs 14:28, in the multitude of people is the king's honor, but in the lack of people is the de destruction of the prince. In the multitude of the people, a country is secure and prosperous, but when there are no people, you're in trouble. So God commanded to fill the earth and that wasn't only the perfect earth before the fall, because after the flood in Genesis 9-1, God repeated to Noah, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Verse 29 of Genesis 1. And God said, see, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Now every green herb undoubtedly includes fruits, vegetables, and grasses, uh, and grains, grasses especially for the animals. Originally, man and animals were vegetarians. Now, how could all animals have lived as vegetarians? Many of them are carnivorous. Well, they, even today, uh, carnivores can survive as vegetarians when they need to. In the future, God has told us that if we look in Isaiah, for example, and where else? Let's see, uh, I think where else? But uh, I think Isaiah 11, verses 6 through 9, we find out, in fact, let me turn there and we'll read it. Isaiah 11, 6 through 9. This is in the future. This is still to come. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. See, be a vegetarian, as God originally created them to be. 
The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Wow, that's pretty cool. That's really neat. So, uh, we know that in the future, animals will be vegetarians. God created us first to be vegetarians. He told Adam and Eve, you could eat these green herbs. But, before the, after the flood, God said to Noah, you could eat any animal, anything and everything. Anything that moves, you can eat as food. But before that, in Genesis 4.20, we find out about this guy named Jabel who started, he introduced cattle raising. And so there's some question, well, why did he do, did he do that? Just for milk and dairy products and all? Or, or did he use their hides? Or did they eat meat? And we don't know. It could be that they disobeyed God concerning this also, but at any rate, uh, initially, animals and man, we were vegetarians. When did animals begin to eat flesh? We don't know. Was it after the, f the fall, after the flood? We, we don't know. And, and perhaps we can figure it out somehow in the future. We might have to wait till we get to heaven. Verse 31, Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So Genesis 1, what does it refute? It refutes atheism, as we've said earlier, and pantheism, and polytheism. Right, pantheism, that everything is God. No, God created the physical universe. Polytheism, that there are many gods. No, there is one God, and he created, although he exists in a plurality. Materialism, no, matter had a beginning. God created matter. Humanism, that man is the ultimate. No, God is the ultimate. He made man. Evolution, no, God created these animals and plants and humans and that they reproduce after their kinds as they were created. Uh, dualism, that there's somehow this, these equal forces of yin and yang or uh, good and evil and they're competing. No, they're not equal forces. God, who is good and righteous, and uh, able to create beautiful design, he created everything. Wow, it's pretty neat. Genesis, the book, will show us the beginning of everything except God. The beginning of everything but God, because God has always existed. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. That's the end of the creation story. Now I have a couple questions for you. And we'll get to the question of why is Einstein in hell. In which verse, I might have missed it. You know earlier I couldn't find the verse that was right in front of my nose? Well perhaps I did it again. I missed the verse where it said that God created time. Anybody see that verse? I didn't see that verse. I didn't see that verse. And I also missed the verse where it says that God created the laws. Anybody see that verse? Maybe somebody could shout out that verse for me. That, there's no verse like that either. Now this is interesting because time, well, that's, that's something that seems to be pretty relevant in, in our existence. And the laws, the spiritual laws and the physical laws, they're pretty important to us. 
And the Bible says, we read in Genesis 1, that God created space. He created the expanse, says the heavens. And he created matter, the earth. And he created light, right? It says he created life, plant life, animal life, and human life. Where does it say he created time? Oh, forgot that, left that out. Where does it say he created the laws? Whoop, left that out. Maybe Jim could give me a little more water in here, Jim, and we'll use that cup with uh, some water in it. Maybe halfway, a little more filled to demonstrate something. Uh, Einstein is in hell. Oh, boy, Jim, you really want me to do quite a science experiment here, huh? Einstein is in hell, I believe, because Christians repeat cliches, words without knowledge, as God uh, was angry and, and tried to set Job straight in Job 38.2, words without knowledge. We say, God created time, God made the laws. Well, we, uh, during this Bible study, uh, we might run out of time today, but there are verses, and we'll see more as we go on, where uh, it presents that there is time in heaven. And God is in time waiting for things to occur. At least that's what he says. Now, a lot of Christians say, well, it doesn't mean that. So I say, okay, well, you show me your verses that say that God created time and that time doesn't exist. And the thing that doesn't exist is verses that say that. Now, tragically, the translators of the Bible believe that God created time. They believe there was a time before time, which is ludicrous. <laughs> you can't have a time before time. They believe that creation has not existed throughout all eternity. And they say that God existed before creation. But how could you have that if there's no time? There couldn't be any time before anything. That wouldn't make any sense. But the Bible speaks in places of the Bible says, from the ages to the ages. Right? From the ages to the ages. In other words, for a long time back. And you know how tr Bible translators will translate that? They'll say, before time began. And that gets me a little upset. Because the Bible doesn't say that. It says very explicitly in the Greek, from the ages to the ages. Now, somebody might want to paraphrase that. We have a living Bible in the room here, and you know that gets a little scary when you paraphrase, but from the ages to the ages is not before time began. The word before is not in there, and the word time is not in there, and the, word, the verb began is not in there. So that's quite a stretch. It comes from philosophers who believe that God created time, and they put that idea in the Bible. And so then we repeat it. And we sound, I think, foolish to people who know better. Not only do we say that God created time, but we say that he created the laws. Now, I'd like to read you a quote from The Soul of Science, a great book by Piercy and Thaxton on Einstein. This is a, this is a, a review of science and Christian thought and how the two have influenced one another. It's a fabulous, fabulous book. And about Einstein, when I read this quote, uh, it was in the middle of the night a few years ago, and I said, Cheryl, honey, honey, wake up, wake up, look at this, look at this quote. I read this quote to her, and she's like, so what? And I said, well, I've been saying this for years, and Einstein's in hell, and I think I know why. And she's like, why don't you go to bed? It's 3 o'clock. And I'm like, all right. Well, here's the quote. It's talking about 
I'll, I'll back up first. Einstein said this. He said that he believes in a God who reveals himself in the orderly harmony of what exists, not in a God who concerns himself who concerns himself with fates and the actions of human beings. He said, I don't believe in a personal God. I don't believe in a God who cares about me. I, I believe in a God who, just like the universe expresses itself as God, it reveals itself in the way it works. So that was his God, like the philosopher Spinoza's God. He liked that kind of God. Well, then Einstein said, God himself could not have arranged the scientific laws in any other way than that which actually exists. And I want us to think about that for a moment. Because Christians, the world over, would condemn that statement. Say, oh, how can you say that? That's blasphemous. And so Einstein's in hell partly because he hears Christians say, and I've been listening for this for many years, I've heard Christians say over and over and over that God made the laws. God made the spiritual laws. God made the physical laws. Now let's think about it. The spiritual laws, if we sum them up, if you obey God, that will, you, you'll be blessed. And if you rebel against God, you'll be cursed. That sort of sums up the spiritual laws. Did God invent that? Did God one day cook up this idea that righteousness would be a good thing and wickedness would be a bad thing? Could God have just flip-flopped it and said, I'm going to bless the rapists and the murderers and I'm going to punish those who love their children and are kind and giving? Would that work? Is that doable? No, it's not doable. It cannot be done. Why? Because the spiritual laws are a reflection of reality. It really is good to love, and it really is bad to be selfish. Now, what does that mean? Well, God exists, and God has a certain personality. He is a certain way. And if we describe the way God is, we describe good. The spiritual laws that describe goodness are a description of God. When we describe God's nature, we begin to describe the spiritual laws. All right, so we find out what is good and what is bad based on what is consistent with God and what goes against God. Those are the spiritual laws. They're a description of the reality of God. We find out when we think that through, and I began doing this many years ago, 20 years ago, when you think that through, and then, when that really settles, and when it settles, it settles real firm. Because God doesn't say, here are my laws, they're arbitrary. He says in the Bible, here are my laws, they are just. They are right, they are true. Do you think I need to quote the verses where he says that? Well, how many hours do we have? We have five minutes. <laughs> God says, my law, my words are true, they're right, they're just. He doesn't say they're arbitrary. He says they're right. The spiritual laws are right. Now, it turns out in the physical world, it's the same thing. God didn't have to invent the physical laws. What he did was he invented the physical world. 
He invented the world, and the laws are simply a description of the way this universe that God made, the way it works. So when he created matter and the expanse of the universe, he didn't have to then make up a law that says uh, two protons cannot occupy the same space at the same time. He didn't have to make up a law that said that because that was simply a definition of reality based on the universe God made. So all these laws that we can identify, right? And we can identify quite a few laws, and they're pretty interesting, like uh, gravity, inertia, uh, centrifugal force, uh, the law of the conservation of angular momentum, when things are spinning and they keep spinning in the same direction. Well, centrifugal force, if something is moving, and you, you spin it in a circle, like I have water here in this cup. And I have a lot of equipment right here, very expensive. But, and Jim filled this cup almost to the brim. But if I spin this cup around, then I almost don't spill any of it. It's all in there. Now, mm, thank you, Jim. Now that force that kept that water in there, even when the cup is upside down, right, against gravity, uh, did God have to create that law? Did he make the law? Well, if he made it, what did he make it? 6,000 years ago, he made the law. And where did he put it? And did the law just have to jump into effect right here when I did this? Can we take that law and get it in a laboratory and weigh it? How much does it weigh? Can we look at it, feel it? Is it soft? No. The law is a description of reality that God created matter, matter behaves a certain way, and that's the way it is. So Christians say God made the laws. No, God made us. And you know, if we had more time, and perhaps we'll do it in the next class, but I have a book here, The History of Modern Philosophy. And it explains how the church about, well, in the 1300s, about 600 years ago, the church started to say that God passed these laws and they were arbitrary. The spiritual laws, he just made them up however he wanted to. That's why they could sell indulgences. You want to commit adultery? Well, you give uh, you know, two pounds of silver to the church and you could, you could commit adultery. That was what the, the church was doing. So Franciscan monks took up this charge of saying that God's laws are arbitrary. You have to believe them and obey them just because he said so. And when I listen to Christian dialogue with unbelievers today and for 20 years, that's all I hear. That's all I hear. You can't commit adultery. You can't have an abortion. You can't do this. Why? Because the Bible says so. Now, that's a good reason, but that's not the only reason. The Bible doesn't say only because I say so. The Bible also says because it's right. And here's why it's right. It'd be like a parent instructing their kids and they only say, the kids say, why do I have to do this because I say so? Why do I have to do this because I said so? Why do I have to do this because I said so? Now that's a good lesson to learn. I've used that with my kids. You have to do this because I said so. And they need to learn that. But if that's the only lesson you've ever given your kids, you're a bad parent. You need to teach your kids, I'm saying this because it's good, it's right, it's for your benefit, it's because I love you. But that we threw out, I think, centuries ago. And we tell the world, you got to do it because the Bible says so. And that's it. And that's a cop-out. That is a total cop-out. 
So Einstein is interacting with the Christianity presented to him through the culture, and he sees an irrational Christianity that says the laws could have been any way. Matter could have behaved in any way, whatever God arbitrarily wanted it to do. Now, God could have created a different kind of universe, but in the kind of universe he created with human beings, then if we're wicked, that's bad. And if we're righteous, that's good. That wasn't thought up arbitrarily. And so I believe because of our words without wisdom, many people go to hell, <coughs> yes, partly because, <coughs> excuse me, they hated God on their own, but also because we misrepresent God. And we have a responsibility to find out what God says is true and then present that, and not just the cliches that we hear on the radio. So God bless you all. I'm thrilled we're done with chapter one, and chapter two will be really exciting. Hey, this is Nicole McBurney again, just reminding you of our telethon. We have a $25,000 goal this year, and you can help us get there by going to kgov.com right now and clicking on the telethon banner at the top of the screen. You can make a donation or purchase any of the products from our store. Anything you get during the month of January will go to our telethon goal. Thank you so much for all of your support, and don't forget to come back tomorrow for Real Science Radio.